If you would open your Bibles, we will be in Psalm chapter 15. Psalm chapter 15. What is the psalm about? Calvin says the psalm teaches us that for God's chosen ones, among whom he dwells, there is an inescapable obligation to be a holy people. So this is about worship. The question, who shall sojourn in his tent, who shall dwell in his holy hill, does have, of course, eternal implications. Who, who shall be in heaven with him, ultimately? But here on earth, who, who is welcome to gather before him? Who, what kind of people should his people be? That's what we're asking this morning. Charles Spurgeon, in a, the final sentence on his commentary on this psalm, said, Let us take ourselves to prayer and self-examination. For this psalm is as fire for the gold and as furnace for the, sir, uh, for the silver. Can we endure its testing power? So that's what this psalm is meant to do. It's meant to give you some criteria by which you may sit back and evaluate yourself on how you're doing in your maturity to give you opportunity to confess actual specific sin and to rejoice in those areas that you may see or that others see in you that you've made progress in. It may cause you to see somebody that you love who says they're a Christian and is walking way outside of this, to have concern for him or her and to pray for him or her and if you love him, to go to him and maybe open up this psalm. Love enough to say something, and it's meant to comfort you. The last line, those who do these things shall never be moved, has, brings me to mind Romans 8. Who can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? But the question always for us is, yes, I confess Jesus is Lord, but how do I know? And one of the main criteria by which we evaluate ourselves, whether or not we're in the faith, is our lives. We confess Jesus is Lord, do we live it? And though none of us do this perfectly, if we're living lives of genuine repentance and if we're living lives that do seek to live according to his word, we can have some comfort because those who do these things will never be moved. We can have real solid comfort that God is our God and he has never lost ever one of his children. That's what this psalm is meant for. So I pray it has that effect in your lives. Let's, let's read. O Lord, who shall, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out money, out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's pray. Father, may the meditations of our hearts and the words of my lips be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. The psalms that we've looked at in the previous four weeks have all had some kind of musical annotation. This one doesn't, but again, we're told that it's of David. The psalm itself has a pretty simple outline. There's a question in verse 1. In answer, 
in verses 2 through the first half of 5, and then a promise at the end of verse 5. So answer, or question, answer, and then promise, if you will. So what do we see in this? I want to first have you look at verse 1, where David is not at all presumptuous in coming into God's presence for worship. He doesn't take coming to worship lightly. It is David's joy. We all likely have heard some kind of paraphrase of Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. David was the kind of man, the kind of godly man, Christian, who loved to gather with God's people and worship him on the Sabbath. It brought him a glad emotional response when somebody said to him, let's go to worship. This was a joy for him. It wasn't drudgery, but it was a trembling thing too. It was a fearful thing, and Christians are supposed to be this mix, this paradox. We love to gather with God's people in worship. It is our profoundest privilege, our highest joy. There's nothing better for us. And yet there's a dress in play. We come before a holy God. We come for a God who doesn't play. We come before a God who strikes the high priest's sons for offering worship that was unacceptable, dead before him, and then tells daddy, don't you shed a tear. (laughs) He's holy. Isn't this the most neglected thing in Christianity today? That God is holy. We don't fear God anymore. We don't talk about the fear of God anymore. We, We do talk about come, come as you are, Wear whatever you want into his holy presence. Doesn't matter. He accepts you as you are. We, that's good. But that ain't all. He's holy. We don't trifle with him. And David gets this. God, who can come into your presence? Or I, I think David is probably asking this first of himself. God, can I come? What should I be like? What do you require of me? Again, I think David is probably wrestling like all of us have wrestled. I love you. I take serious the reality that I am a sinner in desperate need of your grace. I trust the promise of your coming Savior. But do I? How do I know? So who can... Sojourn in your tent. Who can dwell on your holy hill? So God does welcome us, brothers and sisters. He is a good father who warmly welcomes his children. He spreads a table and, you know, bakes the feast and pours the rich wine and has a seat for you at the table. What are his people like? What are his people like? That's what this is about. And so, let's be careful. Christ is your sufficient Savior. Period. That's it. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Nothing else. That's it. We are saved by the work of the Son of God. 
You can add nothing to it. You can take nothing away from it. It is Christ and Christ alone, and he is sufficient. And yet, if you are Christ's, that means he's your Lord, and he gets to tell you what to do and how your life should look like. And, and he doesn't keep you guessing as to what that's like. He spells it out in 66 books of the Bible in great detail and great specificity in every area of your life, how to talk, how to think, how to drink, how to eat what to wear, how to spend your money, how to spend your time, how to spend your Sunday, everything. So that's what he's doing here. So that we don't get presumptuous. So that we're humbled. So here we have 10. That's a familiar number to you. 10 descriptors of what his children should be like. Of those who have come to faith in his glorious son, what their lives should be like. There's ten of them. This is also the general, he who walks blamelessly. This is also the first description of a qualification for an elder, above reproach. That is, our lives as Christians, though there is sin, there's nothing so egregious, there's nothing so ongoing that would cause anyone to think that we're not a Christian. So the general reality of your life is that you have integrity, that you care to keep God's commands. You don't do it perfectly, but that's why we live lives of repentance. So that's the first. Second, after walking blamelessly, you do what is right. Just like that, this is your heart intent. You've set your heart on intent of doing what is right. You do think about this. If you're in a business transaction, I just want to do what's right. If you're parenting your child, your inclinations, I just, I just want to do what's right. And we define that according to Scripture. Third, you speak the truth in your heart. There's an analogy I read this week that tells us what this means. If How many of you are military? When you put your uniform, everything had to line up. Buttons, right? Top to bottom. That's what this means. You, you're lined up internally and externally on truth. What comes out of your mouth is what's in here. What's in here is what comes out of your mouth. You're just, you're lined up. Back in the 60s, they called you a square. You love truth. Fourth, you don't slander. Your tongue, you realize, was given you by God to speak what is true of others. So you won't lie of them, about them. Slander is telling something to someone else about somebody else that is patently untrue. You won't do that. Kids, you ever do that with your siblings? There was a fight. Dad says, what happened? And you just lie about your sibling. <laughs> Marriage, or married people do this in counseling all the time. <laughs> but, 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 but we as Christians don't want to do that with our tongues. 
We don't lie about our government officials. Right? We, we don't slander. We're careful to tell the truth about others, and we're careful even about our enemies to tell the truth about them. Fifth, you do no evil to your neighbor. The context here in, cha- in verse 3 is slander with the tongue is first. The third one in chapter 3 is takes up no reproach against his friend. So they're both speech things. This middle one means you don't speak evilly against your neighbor. You don't speak that which will cause harm to your neighbor. So the context here in verse 3 is speech. Jesus said that our heart is revealed by what comes out of our mouth. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks in Matthew 12. That's what he's getting at here. Again, Christians are lined up. We want what's in here to come out, and what comes out helps us see what's in here. And that is almost in regards to how we speak about others. So, brothers and sisters, how do you speak about others? The sixth one is you won't take up a reproach. This is maybe the most convicting one. This has to do with gossip. So the first two, you won't slander with your tongue, you won't speak evil of your neighbor. Those are like sins of commission. Those are active things that you're saying. This last one is a sin of omission where you refuse to remain quiet when somebody else is saying something about somebody else that they shouldn't be saying. You won't take it up. You won't put up with it. I think wives do this somewhat well with their husbands, I hope. Somebody else is speaking ill of your husband. You won't have any of it. Parents often do this with their children to a fault. When I was in kindergarten or first grade, somebody had brought an umbrella, and like any good boy was, I was turning it into a sword, you know, where you'd flip it open real fast, and I flipped it open, and the umbrella went screaming out the top. And I got in trouble, but my mom, who loved me very much, went and blamed the other students instead of me because she believed my lie. (laughs) Parents take up the right of their kids. They won't let anybody speak evil of their kids. We should do this for each other, brothers and sisters. Spurgeon says that the one who gossips or the one who entertains the gossip is as bad as a thief because he steals reputation. The the Puritans used to say the tale-bearer, the gossip, the snitch, carries the devil on his tongue and the tale-hearer carries the devil in his ear. So don't put up with it. Don't put up with hearing something about somebody else. You have no idea if it's true and it's not being told to you for any good reason at all. You won't take up a reproach. You won't stand for it. So sins of the mouth are a big issue. In verse 4, though, he switches. Now he's going to, how do you evaluate others? You despise a vile person. That's very difficult. Doesn't sound very Christian, does it? That is a mark of one who sojourns in God's tent, who dwells on God's holy hill, is one in whose eyes a vile person is despised. You might remember throughout the Psalms, the Psalms is constantly contrasting two groups, the righteous and the wicked, the godly and the ungodly, those who love him and those who hate him with no middle ground, either or, this or that, that's it. And those who love and come before God hate, despise a vile person. 
And one of the other things you'll notice here, and what's probably coming to your mind right now, are a lot of but. What about? Pastor, you should explain that in more detail. You should nuance that. He doesn't. <laughs> he just says it. He expects God's people to sing it with joy. And we despise a vile person. This is often why Christianity is hated. Because we're so judgmental. If there's any verse that any unbeliever knows, it's that Jesus says, you shall not judge. They've got that down. And yet here we're told to make judgments. You have to decide if the other person is an unbeliever or a believer, is wicked or righteous, is vile or fears God. And you're told to make a judgment. Now, any parent worth his or her salt knows this. You have to judge the friends of your children if you're going to love them and protect them. And sometimes you have to become very unpopular in your home where you're saying, you ain't hanging out with Maddie. Why, Dad? Why, Mom? Just trust me. No, no, you can't go on on a date with. Why? Because you've got to make a judgment, don't you? On the flip side, you honor those who fear the Lord. You honor those. Honor. Paul tells us in the end of Romans that we're to give honor to those whom honor is due. This often comes down to speech, how you speak about others. So do you honor those who deserve it, who fear God? Again, this is a trait, a quality, a character that is largely disregarded in our age. We have no fear of God at all. So these folks are few and far between. And the fear of God is often contrasted with the fear of man. And our idolatrous hearts often fear and care more for people's evaluation of us than God's. We tremble before others and what they think of us, but not before God. So brothers and sisters, fear God. Fear Him. And honor those who do it. Ninth, you swear to your own hurt. What does that mean? I don't talk like that much anymore. It means that when you say something, when you say you do something, that when it's time to fulfill that obligation, even if it's going to cost you time, money, humility, you follow through on it. You do it. You make good on your words. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Christians are those kind of people. We're simple with our speech. Tenth has to do with money. The idea here with you don't put out money at interest, you don't take a bribe against the innocent, is that you use money to help others, not to harm them. You don't make bank off the needs of others. You use your bank to help the needs of others. That is, God gives you wealth 
gives you skill and talent to use to generate wealth. And that wealth is to provide for your own needs, the needs of your family, the needs of your church. And it's to use to help others. We're not to use others to help our bank account. This is something Jesus talks about all the time in the Bible because he knows what we know, that we're all greedy. Do you know that, that you're greedy? You might say, how can you say that? You don't know me. Because I know me. So we're to help others with our money, not help ourselves to their money. So those are the ten. Those are the ten. Why are those here? Because they work really, really well, don't they? Aren't they good? Isn't it good to be around those who strive to do what's right? Isn't it really enjoyable to be around those who are really careful with their words and don't gossip or slander about you or others? Isn't that enjoyable when you can trust people? Isn't it really delightful when people judge rightly and protect each other from those who will bring them harm and welcome those who will bring them good? Isn't that good to have a parent or a husband or a pastor, elders like that? Isn't it really good when people are generous with their wealth? God's word, God's laws are perfect. They're so good. That's what it's here for. Wouldn't it be delightful to live in a church with people that are like this and committed to this? Wouldn't it be delightful to grow up in a home where this is the atmosphere? In a country or a city where this is the general, the norm, not the exception. Or in a business. Wouldn't it be fun? You don't have to be constantly watching your back. So why is this here? Well, it's who God is, and it's who we're being recreated to be in Christ. It's qualification, it's character. What I want to do here is I just want to focus briefly on, on three ways to apply this, maybe. First, I want to talk to our younger people. And so if you're, I don't know what age, 40, 35 or older, use this to pray for our younger folks. When somebody is either new in Christ or a young man or woman in Christ, they often have zeal. They want to be a part of something that matters. They want to use their time to make an impact. We see it all over the streets in America. College age, young men and women out on the streets fighting with great zeal for what they think is right against what they perceive as injustices. This is a really good thing. In 1 John 3, John understands this. Young men overcome the evil one. They are strong. Young men are looking for a battle, a hill to take, a cause to give themselves to, a young woman to... Right? They have zeal. But that zeal needs to be directed. That... Passion needs to be 
grabbed hold of. And one of the ways to do that is to work on your character. It's to be more concerned about your character and your heart than your mission. This is why, again, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 3 says, man, anyone who desires to be an elder, anyone who has that passion for that mission desires a good thing. And then he proceeds in the next seven verses to outline character. Here's a mission, men. It's good to want to be an elder. Better have God the character. Otherwise, your mission's going to end up bad. So young folks, there's a lot to do in this world. You are needed. We have to stop slaughtering unborn children. Get in the fight. But be firstly concerned about your heart and your character. Right? There are women being abused. There are women whose fathers are okay with them parading themselves in videos for the sake of other young men. You ought to care about that and you ought to get in that fight. But how's your heart? How's your character? This is one of the mistakes we mean. We make all the time as people. We should first be zealous to be holy before we're zealous to be effectual. Remember when Jesus was with Peter, Garden of Eden, or Garden of Eden, <laughs> Gethsemane, night is betrayal, Peter pulls out the sword, lops off the ear, all kinds of zeal. Not, not all kinds of character yet. It needs to be directed. So men, women, there is a fight in our culture. There is a fight in our city. There is a fight in our church. There is a fight in your home, but it better be first a fight in your soul and in your life. Don't give me somebody ready to fight who isn't first fighting their sin. That's your first fight. Direct your zeal there first. Right? Older people get this because they've screwed it up so much. Fight your sin. First. Second, this issue of judgments in verse 4. I know this is a tough verse. I know it. I know it. I know it. I know it. I know that it makes your skin crawl. But here's what he says. I'm just going to read it. In whose eyes a vile person is despised and who honors those who fear the Lord. This making a judgment about somebody else is here held up as a good Christian quality. As something that qualifies you to sojourn in God's tent and dwell in his holy hill. Why? First, because you are created in God's image and this is what God does and will do. It should first remind you that at the end of time, we will all face God's judgment. Christ himself will judge us. His first judgment will be sheep and goat, heaven and hell, eternal joy with me, and eternal misery apart from me. 
Are you prepared for that? Does your life show the quality of your life, the repentance from your sin? Does it show that you are ready for that day? Do you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior? The second judgment will be works. Are you storing up reward for that day? Or will you make it barely? (laughs) And so, this is a call to good works. So Jesus will judge. And because we're created in his image, being recreated as his people, we likewise are to judge. We'll judge the angels. Husbands are taught in scripture to judge their wives. Wives, their husbands. Parents, their children. Friends, each other. Church members, each other. Now, here's the thing I want to get into your head. Our world is more judgmental than ever. Why? Because we refuse to make judgments according to God's simple judgment. And when you reject the way God judges, your world just gets filled with a million little judgments. We are so judgmental in our culture. It is awful. What do I mean? (laughs) Didn't you not just live through COVID? Do you not hear how they speak of those who think differently than the all the little manipulative, coercive? What happens if you don't wear a mask? What kind of person are you? Well, you're unloving. It's a judgment. And what happens if you're the kind of person who does wear a mask? Well, those who don't mask think you're an idiot. We are so judgmental. If you're a Christian in a public school and you are a girl running track and you don't think a biological male should run against you, you are judged. Why? Because we will not submit to God's judgment. And when you won't submit to God's judgment, you all become little gods and you all make up your own little righteous list and you judge everybody according to it. And it's awful. So we have to judge, but we have to judge wisely. We live in a culture right now where an unwanted child is born or is judged worthy of death. It's a judgment, isn't it? He's done nothing. She's done nothing wrong or right. Except happen to be in the womb of a woman with a man or a father who deems that child unneeded. Inconvenient. Judged worthy of death. That's the kind of judgmental culture we live in. You want to live in that? You want to live in God's city? I'll take the judgment in verse 4 any day over this hellhole. Where the safest place for a human being should be in the womb of mother. And that's the worst place, especially for little black girls. You have a problem with verse 4? Are you kidding me? Do we not fear God? 
Do you understand what I'm saying? How affected are you by the way the world thinks? And you can't stomach verse 4? This this makes me angry that we as Christians, when we read something like this, immediately get all hot and bothered, but we do not get bothered by all the judgments in the world that are infinitely more harsh than this one. Who is our Lord? This kind of judgment is good. It leads to peace. The kind of judgments the world tear it apart. It's Christ or it's chaos. Which one? Which one do you want? Same thing in your home. It's Christ's judgments or chaos. Which one do you want? Am I right to be angry about this? Is this not pathetic? Start with yourself. Whose judgments are you under? With which judgments do you judge? Forget about all of our legalistic lists. Be done with them. Don't eat, don't taste, don't touch, don't eat. Hogwash. How do you talk about your husband? How do you talk about your wife or children? How do you talk about your boss with the other employees in the lunchroom? Start there. One other thing there. If you're going to marry someday, we have a lot of young people who are getting right there. You're going to have to judge the person you're going to marry. You're going to have to listen to the judgments of those who love you best about the person you're going to marry. And, and you better be careful because that's until death does you part. There's, there's probably no more important judgment that you're going to make. And for a Christian, the first judgment you have to make is, does that person love Jesus Christ? Not does he say he loves Jesus Christ. Not does he say that not does she say she loves Jesus Christ, but does he or she love Jesus Christ? And the way to evaluate that is does he or she love the church? Do they love the church? Are they a faithful member of the church? Do they go to church? Do they sing at church? Do they give to church? Do they serve at church? Do they love God by loving God's people? If you find somebody like that, Ask her to marry you. Beg him to marry you. Don't wait. It doesn't matter if he or she likes the Packers, if he or she likes Fords or Chevys, if he or she knits or golfs. Who cares? Find somebody that loves Jesus and make it work. But you got to make a judgment. You're going to have to judge. Don't be naive. And then... Don't be the kind of person that sees yourself as a 10 when you're actually like a 6. God, I love you. Please be patient with me. This is epidemic in our world. Young men or women who think they're 9s or 10s and they're only going to settle for a 9 or 10 and ain't anybody qualifying and all of the 6s and 7s are getting married and now you're 45. And all that are left are 2s and 3s. Right? <laughs> and this is just true, okay? I know it's funny, but it's true. 
You're a six. That's great. I was, I was like a seven and Mandy was like a six. <laughs> you know why I said that? You know why I said that? Do you know why I said that? Because I am so sick of men saying, oh, why my wife married up? Right? No, you're a godly guy and she's a godly woman and you make it work. Let's end with this. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I think that's one of the funniest things I've ever said. All right, so we all know that there's only one who has lived Psalm 15 perfectly. It's Jesus Christ. And you know, if that you're in Jesus Christ, you've been counted as living it perfectly too. Amen? So let's worship him. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Give us faith for this, to simultaneously know that it's by faith in Christ alone and that we must live for Christ alone. May we worship you, be the kind of people who repent of our sin, aren't afraid to name our sin, and then worship the God who is, it has justified us and is sanctifying us from our sin. And so God, help us to live this increasingly to your glory and forgive us where we fall short. In Jesus' name, amen. The charge is this. Brothers and sisters, let's love and fear God. That's it. Let's love him with all that we are, and let's tremble before him. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord, and I love you.